This is Fine Music Radio 101.3 in the Greater Cape Town area. Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this evening's edition of People of Note. And do you know what? Tonight's program is going to be somewhat different. For a change, we don't have artists, musicians, politicians, authors or whatever. We have a nautical theme, very much a nautical theme. I wonder if you've ever looked at or seen or been lucky enough to meet one of the pilots that plough the harbour here in Cape Town. Well, I have with me one of the senior harbour pilots, who's also known as an open licence pilot, John Hammer, who's going to tell us all about this magical job. John, welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you. You're making me feel very as though I want to go out there immediately with you because, as we were saying just when you came into the studio, there's something fascinating about the sea. Has it fascinated you all your life? Yes, from when I was a little chap growing up in the Free State. I was taken on holiday down to um, Natal, to the port of Durban. Oh, yes. And I used to see these big ships coming in, and I was utterly fascinated by them. So at the age of 18, I signed up with SAF Marine and got on a ship and sailed away to New York and spent six <laughs> years plying the oceans on, on uh, general cargo ships, SAF Marine general cargo ships. But it's interesting that you were brought up in the Free State. Where then did this, this idea of going to sea come from? Was it just seeing the ships on the sea? I think there's a thing called having salt in your veins. And uh, my grandfather, a Cornishman, swam out to a ship when he was 15 and his parents fetched him back from the Royal Navy. My uncle did the same thing. He was in Fort Beaufort in the Eastern Cape and he went down <laughs> to East London and joined a Royal Navy ship and never came back. So there is something about having salt in your veins. And you've been on the sea ever since? I have earned my income from the sea all my life. I had uh, four years at UCT in between. Six years at SAF Marine, I had four years at UCT where I did a social science degree and I did uh, an, an honors degree in uh, clinical psychology. Oh. And uh, just, uh, yeah, it was something I'd wanted to do. But the day I put down my pen after my final exams and my honors year, somebody said they were looking for a second mate on a ship, and I raced down to the harbor <laughs> and jumped on the ship and never looked at academia ever again. <laughs> but what do you do with a degree like a psychology degree? Is that not very useful? Well, in, in terms of finding out, my, I've always been interested in my own personality and where it comes from. And if you do psychology, it was more a, a discovery of self rather than something I wanted to put mm -hmm. into practice out there. You hear actually that a lot of people who study psychology do exactly that. You were going to use the word introspection, weren't you, <laughs> as right. an yeah. introspective sort of thing. Yeah. But then how did the pilot thing come up, just, let, just going chronologically? Because you mentioned yeah. SAF Marine and yeah. then you first made. How did you end up being a pilot? Well, what you normally have, you have to get, uh, when I joined in the uh, l late 80s, you needed to have a master mariner's ticket to join the railways, to join the old railways and harbours, um, to be a part of the marine staff. Oh, so yeah. the thing is to get a master mariner's, and that takes some time. So you do a three-year apprenticeship. After you've done your three years, you write three government exams. Tickets, we call them. Mm -hmm. The first is your class three, class two, and then a class one, which is a master mariner's. And that takes about five years. Oh, really? Yeah. Is and it a lot of academia or is it very practical? It's, a, it's done at the Technicon at the moment. It's a, it's, it's a technical training and uh, there are obviously things you need to learn. So half of your apprenticeship is spent at sea and half is spent at college down at Granger Bay, just next to the port. Mm -hmm. That's where I did my training, the General Boerter. Oh, yes. Um, 
And then, uh, yeah, once you've got your... I I, had just finished doing my master's. I'd been working on the coasters, unicorn coasters. There was an advertisement calling for staff for the harbour services here in Cape Town. I applied. I got the job as a tug mate. And everyone (laughs) said, how did you get to be in Cape Town? There's a waiting list. So I said, I replied to the advertisement and I got the job. Because lots of people had to get in through the smaller ports like uh, Wellfish Bay mm. or Mussel Bay or places like that. But I walked straight into Cape Town I, where I wanted to be. And uh, I was a tug mate for two or three years. And then I became tug master and I was tug master for eight years. At the end of my tug masters, I um, went for an interview for a pilot's job. And I did 100 jobs with the senior pilots then. And towards the end, you start doing them yourself more and more, and the senior pilot watches you. Then you get your first license. Your first license was 10,000 tons, which means you can do little fishing boats. (laughs) And the day they push you out there and you're on your own is the day you start learning. Mm -hmm. As long as you've got a senior pilot to get you out of trouble, it's fine. But suddenly on that day when you got your brand-new 15,000-ton license with ink still drying on it and you're standing on the bridge of a fishing boat and the captain says, there you go, pilot, it's all yours, that's the day you really start learning. <laughs> Do you remember that very clearly? Very clearly, Of your yes. very first time you Absolutely, did that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I was lucky the Japanese fishing fleet were in port at the time. And uh, there, there was, I did 12 fishing boats in one shift, one six-hour shift. Good grief. It was a February month, and there were just lots of them. And I was learning because a little Japanese fishing boat behaves just like a big ship, really. And uh, that was how I started. Is it like getting pilots? You know, you've got to have air miles or whatever it is when you want to become a pilot. So what's it's the, what they time call it? and experience. Time and experience. in fact, it actually depends on how you feel about it. When you, get, you progress through the tonnages, it goes from 10 to 20 to 40 to 80 to an open license. And that takes about five years. The skill involved in moving a big ship in the harbor is quite a lot more than a small one. Although the principles are the same, when you've got adverse weather and things like that, you need that much more experience in order to do the bigger ships. And that's why it takes time to learn. And that's what open license means. Any any vessel, oil rig, whatever presents itself three miles off the breakwater, I have the skill and ability to go out there and make sure that the job is done safely and the ship is put alongside. So have you been on some of the big ocean liners? Yes, yeah, yeah, they're quite common. They come in, and uh, I was lucky enough to have gone on the Queen Mary, the new Queen (laughs) Mary too. I think it was her second call, and fortunately the weather was very nice and everything went smoothly. Okay, I've got so many questions to ask you now because now you've excited a sort of childhood interest of mine. But, John, as always, the rule is... Bring some music with you, and what have you brought? Peter Gabriel, I see, lurking there. Yes, the first uh, piece of music I brought is Peter Gabriel. It's called Secret World. I tend to like male voice. I like male ballads. I like singing uh, lyrics, songs that have stories, and that's why I chose this one. What is it called? It's called Secret World.
sheltered in this unsheltered place Till I could see the face behind the face All that I've gone before left no trace We were colliding All 
Peter Gabriel on Fine Music Radio. Not often appearing, so it's good to hear Peter Gabriel, who had such a reputation. Secret World was the name of that. The first choice of my guest on People of Note, John Hammer, one of the senior harbour pilots in Cape Town Harbour, and also, as you heard, who has an open license pilot. Um, John, is music important to you? I'm always intrigued at what a guest is going to bring along. You know, if I'm talking to a classical person, I expect classical music, I suppose. So you're being pleasantly unpredictable in many ways. Do you get a chance to listen to music? Yes, I've always been keen on listening to music. Um, right from when I at boarding school, we used to have a little room that we all used to get into and play. Bob Dylan I was one of our favorites. There was one of the prefects who didn't like it, and we didn't like him, so we <laughs> played Bob Dylan to get rid of him. <laughs> we played it endlessly. And then when I went to sea as an apprentice, I actually took a record player. It was before there were tapes or anything like that, and I had all my vinyls with me, and they all got terribly scratched because as the ship rolled, the needle would go across (laughs) the the record. So, yes, music's always been important to me. John, tell me about a typical day in your life, but I don't want you to go into too much detail because I want to ask you later about the big ships that you bring in. But from a routine point of view and a shift point of view and a call point of view, what is a typical day in the life of a senior harbour pilot in Cape Town? Yeah, well, the port operates 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. We don't have weekends or nights or it's continuous. So we divided into teams. There are four teams of us, and uh, it's called the quad shift system that we're working at the moment. And we work 12 hours on and 36 hours off, except on the weekends there's less, uh, 48 hours during the week and 36 hours on the weekend, so that one team of pilots can actually have a weekend off. So we only get one weekend off in four. When I get to work in the morning, I can either be doing a day shift or I can be doing a night shift. But what the same thing happens, I get to work, I look on the computer screen and I see what jobs are on for that 12 hours that I'll be there. There's first, second and third pilots. There's six of us in a team, but we divide into a morning, an early and a later team. And the early people well, the first man will do the first job, the second man will do the second job, and the third man will do the third job, so that the jobs are spread out amongst us. The job being bringing in a ship bringing or taking out a ship. Bringing in a ship or taking out a ship. That's what we call a job. And it starts, if there's a ship that's arrived, the ship comes three miles off the port. Port control speaks to the ship. The pilot boat gets dispatched from number one jetty at the VNA. It comes to a little jetty called Willie's Wall, and I can tell you why it's called Willie's Wall, but <laughs> anyway. And then we come down from what was called in the old days the Taj Mahal, Port Control. We walk to Willie's Wall, we get on the pilot boat, and we head out to that three miles off ship. And we climb up a rope ladder up the side, and we say, Good morning, Captain, I'm here to help you. And the man, the, the bridge watch, puts in the logbook to master's orders and pilot's advice. I'm not, I don't take command of the ship. The captain is always in command of his ship, but I'm there to advise him. And in fact, I do the job with my voice. It's called conning the ship. Oh, I stand gosh. next to the captain, and I say um, to the helmsman, hard a port. And I say to the man on the, on the telegraph, dead slow ahead. And off we go, heading towards the port. By now, the captain will have told me the characteristics of his ship. He'll say whether it's a fixed propeller any strange anomalies, what the draft of the ship is, 
and what speed it does at dead slow ahead and slow ahead. These are things I need to know because now I'm going to be the one maneuvering the ship. That's and responsible. And responsible, but the captain never relinquishes. In fact, it's the captain's duty, if he feels the pilot's doing a bad job, to take over. Oh, really? Yes, but he'd be <laughs> advised to happened. do... Well, no, it, it does happen, you know. Some ports don't have pilots that are very good pilots, and the captains are always a little nervous of the pilot, and they watch you and you watching them the whole time. So there's a bit of my psychology coming into oh, play. there you there. go. There you yeah, go. And, uh, but uh, when the captains have been coming often, they know, they know me and I know them, and they know they can, they're going to get a good service out of me and they can relax. So you don't actually touch the controls. You, you, it's voice thing, as you yeah, said, the conning thing. conning thing. You never touch the wheel. You, don't, you just stand there and you, you advise. The only time I do touch the wheel is on Chinese fishing boats, Japanese fishing boats, and Spanish fishing boats because there's no language at all. So when you pa- say portend to them, you might as well be telling them to kick the dog because they have no idea. <laughs> so you take over the steerage, and then you do it by hand gestures. If you want to go ahead, you point ahead. If you want to go stern, you point astern. If you want to stop, you hold it. And, yeah, those the, 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 there's little English. Most of the other ships, it's the, on, especially on the merchant ships, the captains are required to speak English. It's part of their qualification wherever they come from. There's a level of English. The language of the sea is English. Mm-hmm. So that is the means of communication between me and the captain. Are you on the ship right until it's docked? Right tied until up. it's tied up. And I, I will be with, the captain stands next to me throughout that job. And if I say something to the helmsman, the captain actually says it as well because it goes through him to the helmsman, and he can countermand it if he wants to. Up until the ship is securely tied, I, once we get into the port, the first thing we've got to do is make the tugs fast. Ships coming into a small port like Cape Town cannot maneuver themselves alongside on their own. The minute they sl- slow down and stop, they become sitting ducks. <laughs> And it's then that the tugs, before, as the ship approaches the breakwater, the tugs put lines up, heavy heaving lines, up to the ship, tow lines. And those tow lines will eventually be used to pull the ship into its positions, or the tug has a great big mat, and it can push against the hull of the ship. So the tugs are for pulling and pushing, and that is part of my job as the pilot is to tell the tugs what to do. So I'm telling the helmsman what to do, I'm telling the, the, the what to do with the ship's telegraph, and I'm telling the tugs what to do in order to maneuver the ship safely alongside. Then the next thing is to tie the ship up. You've got to get the mooring lines out. And only when you've got it secured alongside can you finally relax and say, shake the captain's <laughs> hand and he'll say, good, good job, pilot, or otherwise. Or otherwise. <laughs> and then the same in reverse, presumably, as you take a ship out, pulling it away from the wharf, getting the tugs to pull it away and guiding it through the breakwater. Exactly. And at what point then when the ship is sort of steaming out, you say, right, bon voyage, I'm, and get off? Well, that depends on the captain when he's happy to release you. But we like to get off before the breakwater because it's it's more difficult to get off a ship than to get on a ship, strangely That's enough. why I'm asking you this way around because um, I don't know why that is, but it struck me. I thought you actually did go further out and then hopped yeah, off the no, side. No, we, we, we get from the bridge to the pilot ladder very fast as we're approaching the breakwater. But we make sure that the captain is on a course 
that will safely take him past the breakwater. Uh -huh. And we've told him and shown him where the boys are, the channel boys, and where the fairway boys. So he knows exactly what to do when I leave the bridge. And I've told him of any other traffic around, if there's ships crossing or anything's going to be impede his safe navigation out of the port. And when he's happy, and I say to him, Captain, are you happy? You'll say, yes, pilot, I've got it. And you'll shake my hand. And then I race down the deck, jump on the pilot ladder, and get down to the pilot boat as quickly as I can before I get soaking wet at <laughs> beyond the breakwater. Well, I want to talk about weather as well. That was a lovely description, John. Thank you about bringing a ship in and out. I want to talk about bad weather and heaving swells and things and when you make decisions not to let ships come in or go out, but also what some of the big ships. I want you to tell me more about the Queen Mary. But let's take another music break. And you did mention Bob Dylan earlier, and I see that lurking. Yes, Bob Dylan, as I say, I grew up on Bob Dylan, and I thought an appropriate one, blowing in the wind. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely appropriate. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must a white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly for their forever band The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Yes, and how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind yes and how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky Yes, and how many ears must one man have Before he can hear people cry Yes, and how many deaths will it take Till he knows that too many people have died The answer, my friend is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind
Even I know that song, John. Blowing in the Wind, Bob Dylan, the choice of my guest, John Hammer, here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this evening. As I've been saying, one of the senior harbour pilots here at Cape Town Harbour, who also has an open licence pilot, which we discovered means that you can take in and out ships over 100 tonnes, 100,000 tonnes. John, we were talking about you getting on and off the ship and getting saturated and blowing in the wind. What is the story with Cape Town's unpredictable and famously uh, stormy weather? You must have quite a rough time in winter. Yes, uh, it's not called the Cape of Storms for nothing. We have some horrendous weather. We even get swells up to six, seven meters three mile, at that point of three miles off where I board the vessels. Good grief. Um, but I must say that once the swell gets above four, t- up to five meters, our poor old pilot boats that have been doing it for many years, they're fantastic. They're purpose-built for the job, but even they can't cope with that. So we have to wait the storm out. But we always assess, see what we can do. and what we, The port is very seldom totally closed. You always hear the, them saying, oh, the port is closed, but I'm not sure where they get that information because sometimes with some of with the, the strong southeasters, we can do a deep-drafted vessel, which means something that's sitting low in the water. We'd be able to do that. But a container ship or a passenger ship that's got a small draft, which has only got four meters of its hull under the water, and a huge superstructure, is an an enormous windage area. So part of my job as the pilot is to actually make sure that I'm doing the job safely and taking the weather into account. Mm -hmm. So the weather is very much part of my job. It's the state of the sea and it's the wind. The wind in Cape Town, we all know the wind does. In summertime, we get the southeaster. And in wintertime, we get the northwester. So between those two things, I'm monitoring the weather all the time. I, I, I look at about six different weather <laughs> reports every day to see what I can hope, to, what weather is going to be thrown yeah. at me at my day at work. And what pattern is coming up to hit us. I remember famously just late last year, early this year, one of the big passenger ships that comes here regularly, the Sinfonia, was trapped for a few days, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And that was because of the wind, apparently. Yes, yeah. You know, everyone thinks, oh, it's a passenger ship and it can do anything in any weather but that's not the case at all. And I actually had been on the ship and we'd, I'd spoken to the, uh, on a previous occasion, we'd come in in good weather and the Italian uh, captain and myself had had a conversation that if the wind was over 35 knots, he wasn't happy to do the ship. You see, that's what we do. When a ship is sailing, I'll go on board and we'll, I'll talk to the captain. I'll say, you know, captain, as I say, I'm the advisor as the pilot. I'll say the wind is blowing 40 knots, and I honestly don't think it's safe to move your vessel in this wind. There are very few captains who will say, pilot, let's go and do it anyway. It would be crazy. We don't, the whole point of my job is safety, is moving those vessels in and out of the port in a safe manner. And doing anything in strong gales is not a safe thing. I was interested to hear when you speak about a deep draft. I was interested to hear that passenger ships don't have such a deep draft because... Some of them look quite top-heavy, especially the Queen Mary. No, not the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was built as a proper liner. She was built in the same shipyard as the original Queen Mary and Elizabeth and the QE2. So she's a proper ship. She sits deep in the water. She can cross the North Atlantic in the middle of winter. She was built as a liner. Most of the modern passenger ships are cruise ships. They go around the Caribbean. They're not equipped for bad weather. They've got very shallow drafts, like the MSC Opera that got stuck in the port. They have these huge superstructures, and they blow in the wind. (laughs) 
<laughs> blow over probably. Not over. Let's not talk Sideways. About that. <laughs> Sideways in the wind. That's the trouble. You see, the harbour, to keep those great big Cape storms out, the entrances to the harbour are notoriously small to keep that weather out. And unfortunately, the southeaster blows straight across the entrance to the entrance to the Duncan Dock where the passenger ships go. And if the wind's blowing across, you've actually got, it's, it's called making leeway on the ship. You've got a point, the ship at a point far to the left to get through that entrance. And you don't get a second chance at it. When you get to the entrance, you've drifted sideways to the point where you can slip through the entrance. There's no going back and trying it again. You only get one chance at it. And that's called leeway, and that's a very important part of my job. So, yeah, there's three entrances to the harbor. A bit of the history of the harbor. There's yes, please, the, gosh. The basins. The, the From the horse's mouth, so to speak. Before, uh, up until 1860, all there was was a jetty that stuck out into this stormy bay that the old sailing ships could come and anchor. But the winter winds very often drove them onto the beach at Woodstock, and there's photographs of old sailing ships wrecked on Woodstock Beach. So the Victorians thought, we've got to do something about this. And they built the little Alfred Basin, which when you go into the v it's where the Cape Grace Hotel is. Oh, and that yes, was yes. the original. That was built in 1860. And where the clock tower is, that was the entrance to the sea. Oh, and there right. was a little breakwater that stuck out from there to try and prevent those great big winter southwest swells getting in. <laughs> 1900, they realized that they'd completely outgrown the Alfred Basin, and they built the Victoria Basin. And they had to extend the breakwater, the great old pier that sticks out to sea with the green light on the end of it. That had to be extended. The Victoria Basin got to be too small in the 1950s. Now, just, sorry, which is the Victoria? You've made that's me realize. That's the V&A. Okay. The, the little Alfred Basin and the Victoria Basin. That's where the V&A shopping center. Right. That's the, that's the Victoria if Basin. If you look at 1900 photographs, and there are lots of them, you'll see the old passenger ships in that basin. Okay. During the war, First World War, <laughs> you'll see all the old troop ships lined up, all in that V&A. And it, uh, if you look at the spaces inside there, it's full of fishing boats now. Yes. Ships were quite small. Mm. Ships have only recently got really big. And as they got bigger, so they had to build bigger basins. So we built the Duncan Dock in the 1950s. And they had to reclaim almost a kilometer of land from the old castle down to where the edge of the quay is now in the Duncan Dock. And that but was as recent as 1950? In the 1950s they did. They finished okay. it and they started using those, the, the, the Duncan Dock. And then with containerization, the ships outgrew Duncan Dock. So they built the Ben Skuman Dock, right. which is the container terminal. Which is sort of parallel, isn't it, next to it's the Duncan next, Dock? Next to the Duncan out, Dock, so and it's got those huge big gantry cranes that you see standing out. That's mm -hmm. the container terminal. And that was built in the 70s with containerization. Okay. And each of those, is as they've had built them, so the old breakwater has had to get longer and longer and longer as a protecting arm from that southwest swell to protect the basins because the ships need to tie up safely inside the harbor and uh, we can't let any of that weather those big <laughs> swells into the harbor and that's why the entrances are all quite small and that's why it's in any strong winds we have to, it's the pilot's job to decide whether he can do it safely or not Gosh, as you say, what a responsibility, John. I want to talk to you more about the Queen Mary. I want to know what it's like to be on the deck. But first of all, your next piece of music is more, shall we say, classical 
Well, in a way, it's the Ramirez Misa Criola. Why have you chosen this particular piece? Um, I like sacred music. And it's once more, it's Jose Carreras, and it's a male voice and uh, singing very beautifully, and I think it's a very beautiful piece of music. really quite haunting music. I'm glad you chose that, John. The Misa Criola with the lovely Jose Carreras. It was the choice of my guest, John Hammer. It's from the Misa Criola by Ariel Ramirez, and it's it's got a haunting quality, which I think is why you brought it. John Hammer is one of the senior harbour pilots here in Cape Town. We're discovering wonderful things about the harbour, and I want to ask you all about the Queen Mary in a moment. But I first want to ask you, you've made this comment a few times, because you say you love male voice, do you not like the soprano female voice at all? Um, not particularly. I, I, there are some female voices, but if, my preference is the male voice. Yeah. Do you like opera at all? Not particularly. I prefer theatre. 
okay. find opera a little bit of a fuss and bother about nothing. One thing, <laughs> one thing you'll find out about semen, and, and it's common to almost all semen, is strangely enough, they're down-to-earth people. It sounds a bit like a contradiction. Mm. But I think the sea knocks the stuffing out of people. You realize that you are fairly insignificant when you're on a small ship out in a big sea, especially during a storm. Yes. And I think most seamen, in all my experience, are down-to-earth people, if you don't mind me using that expression. I'm very glad you did. I just want to relate this little story that when I was on the QE2, yeah. going from Durban to Southampton, we went through a big storm in the Bay of Biscay, but it was a wind and swell storm. It was blue sky, but I was really quite astonished at how rough the sea was and how the ship was tossed about the huge QE2. By that stage, because of radio connections, and I was a friend from the BBC, we'd made friends with the people on the bridge where you're not normally allowed. Mm. And we went up to the bridge a few times and had a whiskey, whatever. And the man was saying there was a 10-meter swell. And I said, surely not. So he said, come with me. And he took me right down almost to about three or four feet above the water and went out the back of the ship. Mm. And for the first time, I saw moving mountains of water mm. and realized just what a swell can be like. As you say, you realize how insignificant you are. But that ship handled it well, as, as you've been implying, the Queen Mary would. So you would bring the Queen Mary into Cape Town Harbour in a howling gale? No, I wouldn't for the same reason. You know, 35 knots is a gale. 40 knots is a strong gale. When you start Cape Town in the southeast, it gets to 45, 50. It can't even get to 60. That's not clever weather to be moving a great big vessel through one of those narrow entrances. Even with its draft? Even with its draft it's still going to make leeway. Uh The Queen Mary, the new or the Queen Mary too, she's got all sorts of powerful, she's got bow thrusters. People say, why do you need pilots and why do you need tugs? You've got all these ships nowadays, they've got all everything that opens and shuts. They've got bow thrusters surely. And she's also got azipods down aft. So she can, she's got Tremendous side thrust that she can use. But even with that, the notorious Cape Southeaster can sometimes overpower her. So the, the captains on the cruise ships often come in and say, oh, pilot, I don't really need tugs, and I'll do it all on my own. Don't you worry. <laughs> Until they get to realize that the basins are very small, the entrances are very narrow, and that the wind is very strong. And I always make the tugs fast in any doubt, make a tug fast. And there have been times, and with the Queen Mary, not when I was the pilot, one of the others, the, the wind got to the point where the thrusters weren't holding the ship, and the captain turned to the pilot and said, Pilot, would you mind asking those tugs just to hold the ship up into the wind for a little longer while I get her going? <laughs> so, yes, yeah, even, even the Queen Mary needs the help of the harbor pilot and the tugs. What did you think the very first time you had to go and bring in the Queen Mary? Because she's such a famous ship, one of the biggest passenger liners about luxury. And what did you think? You know, um, merchant seamen are a funny lot. Passenger ships we used to call cattle ships in the old (laughs) days. And we didn't like, only the good boys got to go on the passenger ships. All us, the rest of us, were on the cargo ships. And so I've, I, I, passenger ships, I have mixed feelings about. The Queen Mary is certainly something that's charismatic, and I can understand why. And uh, it was wonderful to see her. She doesn't look like a big ship from a distance because she's so well proportioned. And as you get closer and closer, you realize how big she is. And she's very big. The Queen, the QE2, was 300 meters long, and she was 90,000 tons. 
The new Queen Mary is three, 350 meters long, and she's 140,000 tons. So she's another third bigger than the QE2. Mm. That's big. That is very big. And so the one thing you're nervous when you go on board is the captains on the, on the passenger ships tend to think they're closer, closer to God than the rest of us because they've got all these adoring passengers. <laughs> so you've got a personality to deal with. And I've got to say, both on the QE2 and now on the Queen Mary, the captains have been good, solid old British captains that don't have an opinion of themselves and are more than happy to take your advice as the pilot. The bridge of the Queen Mary is fascinating, isn't it? Because it doesn't really have a wheel anymore. Doesn't it just have toggle sticks or something? Oh, you land lovers have all sorts of funny ideas (laughs) of toggle sticks and wheels. There always has to be a wheel and there always has to be emergency steering. But as I said, the captain has got, he's got azipods, which are propellers down aft that can be omnidirectional. He can direct the thrust in any direction. And he's got two huge, powerful bow thrusters. So what does happen in effect when, especially the Queen Mary or one of those, if the weather is good, I will really just stand next to the captain and he will play with all his toys and, and <laughs> maneuver his ship alongside. Any captain of any ship, if they want to bring their ship in on their own, uh, I, I as the pilot cannot prevent that. He has to have me standing next to him, and I will continue to advise him even if he doesn't want my advice because I know the port intimately. Mm. I know all the navigational marks. I know what the wind can do. So the captain would be a strange man if he didn't take the pilot's advice. But some of the cruise ships, the captains have huge egos. And we also, two kinds of ships are the ones to avoid, are passenger ships and warships. The captain in a warship often thinks he knows everything about his ship and everything about everything else as well. And very often the, the pilot is said, the captain says, oh, pilot, please, can't you just help me now? I seem to be in a little <laughs> spot of bother here. So you also have to go on to warships. It's oh, the yes, same, it's yeah, the same yeah. rule. Every ship that comes and, comes and goes from into Cape Town Harbor and any harbor in the world has a pilot on board. Mm-hmm. People think, when they, people say, what is your job? And I say, I'm a pilot. They say, oh, where do you fly? <laughs> and I, unfortunately, it's only been 100 years that these other guys up in the air have stolen our word. Pilots have been around for hundreds of years. When a ship approaches a foreign shore, you want to get somebody local to show you into the, a safe anchorage, safely alongside and where the best place is to go and buy some razor blades. <laughs> of course. And the big uh, tankers, John, the big super tankers that you get nowadays, th- because Cape Town can take a fairly large tanker, can't it? Yeah, the restriction with Cape Town is the depth of the <coughs> harbour. The reason they had to reclaim so far out into the Duncan Dock is that the bottom of Table Bay is rock. It's granite. So you can't dredge it. You oh. can't make it deeper. So them being Dutch, they reclaimed land until they got to deep water. The average depth in the Duncan Dock is 12 meters. Those big oil tankers, when they loaded, they're drawing 22 meters. That's a seven-story building underwater. They can't even come past Robben Island. So you see them going past. They can get into Sildana Bay. Sildana Bay has got a depth of 24 meters. But the restriction in Cape Town is the depth of our harbor. So when are those, those big ships, they, the only time we can take them in is when they're in ballast, which means they've got no cargo in them. Mm-hmm. And that means they can be, we can take them up to 12, 13 meters into the Duncan Dock. And the biggest one, strangely, just after I got my open license, was a 160,000-ton tanker. 
It was 350 meters long. And if you stand on the bridge of that and look along the deck, that's a that's a very big ship. <laughs> that's a huge. The Queen Mary, you the bridge is quite far forward, so you're not, you're not quite so aware of how big she is. But when you're on the bridge of a tanker, you've got all that deck out in front of you, and you know she's a big ship. <laughs> what a unique job you have, John. I want to ask you about navigational marks and getting to know the harbour, but after your next choice. Yes, my next choice is uh, uh, um, some authentic Russian sacred music. It's a hymn called The Sacred Day, and once more my fascination with the male voice and choirs. There's certainly something about a Russian choir, John, that gives a unique sound. And um, just just tell us what that was. Um, it's a CD I found somewhere. It's called um, Authentic Russian Sacred Music. And it's, uh, this particular male voice choir is the Solgesi male voice choir of St. Petersburg. And that hymn was called The Sacred Day. I have quite a lot to do with Russians. Uh, they, many of the ships coming into the port now have Russian masters on board. Um, they're well trained. The Russians have, for some strange reason, always been people of the sea. The old square riggers, there were always Russian crew on board. And, uh, yeah, they, I, they, they're also salt of the earth type people, the Russians generally, and the seamen. Um, 
and uh, I get on quite well with Can them. you speak any Russian? No, unfortunately I can't, no. <laughs> right. But I, I get to hear... The thing about my job is every ship I go on is whatever country it comes from. If I go mm. on a Russian ship, I'm in Russia and I get given Russian food. Yes. If I get on an Italian ship, a waiter comes with a, a cloth draped over his arm with a nice fresh cappuccino presented to me. If I go on a British ship, I'll get a cracked mug with some horrible <laughs> coffee in it. Oh, dear. So Even the Queen Mary? No, not quite the Queen Mary. No. Just explain to me, John, uh, about the... The what do they call it when the ships stand out in the waterway? There's a special f term for it. The anchorage. The anchorage. Yeah. Sometimes you see quite a few ships standing out there. And also yeah. we told there was a story recently that one ship seems to have been trapped out there. And we have had a problem around this coast, haven't we, of ships coming in that are really below par and being yeah. arrested. Yeah, in the Cape of Storms it is, and it always has been, and uh, there have been many, many wrecks on our coastline and in Table Bay and all the way around the peninsula. So um, there's an anchorage, but when the ships, people think, why are they going to anchor and there don't seem to be that many ships in the port? Mm. But you, people don't realize that each ship has a specific task to do. If it's a grain ship, it needs to go to a berth that's the grain berth. If it's a container ship, it needs to go to the container terminal. So even although the port looks empty, if there's another ship in that ship's berth, then that ship can't come in. So they have to go to anchor, and they anchor in Table Bay. Table Bay, as I say in winter, can be notoriously bad, and we actually advise the ships the captains ask us, and we'll say to them, in the approach of a storm like this one that's just been passed, it's safer for you to weigh anchor and to go off port limits. And the poor souls have to go up and down and up and down the peninsula waiting out the storm because Table Bay isn't a safe anchorage, partly because of the rock. There isn't anything for the anchor to hold on to and the large swell that comes right into the bay. The bay, the port limits are demarcated by three lighthouses, Robin Island, Greenpoint, and Milnerton Lighthouse. And you'll see all three of them. And each one has its own characteristic. It flashes in a certain way. And it's, it looks different. Greenpoint with its diagonal red and white stripes. Robin Island's got red on the bottom and white on top. And the Milnerton Lighthouse is white with just a little red cap on it. And they have their own flashing light signal. So when you look at that in, in, on murky weather, you know which lighthouse you're looking at. And besides that, there's... Uh, the fairway boy, which is, uh, it's got a raycon on it, and the ship's radars respond to that, and it's marked on their radar where that boy is. It marks itself. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of land, that's where the master gets himself three miles off that raycon boy, just past between Greenpoint Lighthouse and Robin Island Lighthouse, and hopefully the pilot boat will be there for him and the pilot will be ready to scramble up the ladder and come and help him relieve him of the stress of, of, of some of the stress of the command of his own vessel. Right, because these are the navigational marks now you spoke about, of which yeah. apparently there are quite a few. Yeah. And you need to know the old saying, you need to know the harbor and the underneath, the depths, like the back of your hand, don't you? You need to know the channels that the ships can go through, where they might be, where the water might be not so deep. Yeah, that's precisely why you take a pilot on board, because the pilot is the person who knows these things. Mm. I can't claim to know every single depth in the port, but I know the main ones. I know the, the, the widths of the entrances, 
And uh, I've also in constant communication with port control. And the tide, obviously, is another important thing. Luckily, in, in the Cape, because of our latitude, our range of tide is only one meter. In some ports, when you get to the higher latitudes, the range can be anything, you know, up to five, six meters. Goodness me. But even that one meter does make a difference. When the Queen Mary wants to put her fancy gangway out, she doesn't <laughs> want to eventually find it sticking up in the air <laughs> yes. when that one meter, wh- when you come in. So the tide, the depth under the keel, the entrance width, the, the, the dimensions of the ship, all these things the pilot has to take into account. What this thing of the rocky bottom of Table Bay has been one of the more fascinating things among the many fascinating things you said, because it seems extraordinary. Why is it rocky? So you're saying that all out there around Robben Island, it's basically rock at the bottom. That's right. Yeah, it just depends on the geology of the bay. And uh, one of the things we've had to do at the container terminal, I don't think people people might have noticed, but in the last five years, container ships have gone from the big whites. Everyone said those are really big. They were 50,000 tons. We're now regularly doing 100,000 ton container ships, the big MSC ones you see coming in. And they are 340 meters long. The old uh, big whites were 260 meters long. So ships have got much bigger. And the the harbor hasn't got any bigger. Mm. Mm. So one of the things they had to do in the the container terminal in the Ben Skumon dock was to make it deeper to accommodate these ships. They had to go in with dynamite and blast that rock and get very specialized rock dredges. It cost a huge amount of money. It took two years to get the harbor down another two meters, which isn't all that much. But now we can bring them in up to 14 meters. We can bring those big container ships in. John, let's have your last piece of music before I ask you a couple of final questions. The last piece of music I've chosen, she's uh, the new word on the block in trumpet players. She's Ah. a young Norwegian, 26-year-old trumpet player. And she's going to be playing the first movement of Neruda's trumpet concerto. And I think you'll all agree with me, it's a very beautiful piece of music. And she plays so beautifully. Pronounce her name for me. I'm, I wouldn't be saying, Scandinavians would be probably rolling around laughing at my pronunciation, but I would say Tina Ting Helseth.
It's a lovely sound, John. Uh, Tiny Ting Helseth. She's the latest thing <laughs> on the trumpet world. You see her on YouTube and all over the place. The, choice, the last choice of my guest. I've been talking to John Hammer, one of the senior harbour pilots here in Cape Town. Fascinating to hear. But just before you go, what do you do to relax? I mean, you can hardly go down and look at the docks because that's where you work all day. What, what other things do you get involved with? Well, uh, I've found a land-based sailing machine, an old mill. You all go past it below the University of Cape Oh, Mustard's Mill. Mustard's Mill, yes. I'm a volunteer at the mill. And every fourth Saturday, there are five or six of us go down. We open up. We put the sails up. We take the brake off. We pour some wheat into the between the stones. We grind away, and uh, people come to visit the mill. It's a, more than two. It was built in 1796. It's the authentic. It's the last, we think, remaining windmill in the Southern Hemisphere, if not in Africa. And it's lots of fun. I really enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> I like the way you say a land-based hobby because it still involves sails and things. Exactly, yes. And, and Cape Townians come along, don't they? And they come Anybody and look at who it. wants to come. We, we do advertise on Fine Music Radio on a Friday morning at half past eight and on Saturday morning whether the mill will be open or not. It depends on the weather and it depends on if there are enough millers. Okay. We all volunteers, and we give up our every fourth Saturday in order to mill. Okay, so uh, it's every fourth Saturday, uh, the last Saturday of the month. In depending other on the weather and depending on if there are enough millers. And that will be advertised on, yes, on our Great, calendar program. On yes. calendar. Um, John, it's been fascinating talking to you. It sounds to me as though you have the most fascinating life. And you've been sitting here smiling sweetly and looking incredibly <laughs> relaxed. I don't know if you do that when you board the Queen Mary or when there's a southeaster blowing. But clearly you have salt in your blood somewhere. John, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for being such an interesting guest. And who knows, come and visit us again sometime. Thank you, Rodney. John Hammer, one of the senior harbour pilots in Cape Town, who has, as you heard, an open licence pilot as well. And that was my guest on People of Note this week on Fine Music Radio, Rodney Trudgeon signing off. <laughs>